This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin Republican lawmakers in Washington are calling for Governor Tony Evers to ban the social media app TikTok from all state devices, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. TikTok is a popular video sharing app owned by the China-based company ByteDance. The lawmakers are concerned about the privacy of TikTok, saying that the company could send data collected from the app to the Chinese government. U.S. Representative Mike Gallagher, a Republican from Green Bay who co-signed the letter to Evers, called the app, quote, digital fentanyl, unquote, in an interview with Fox News last month. Evers responded to the letter by saying that he takes cybersecurity extremely seriously and will defer to the advice of law enforcement and security experts when making decisions about state government devices. While the Evers campaign did use TikTok during the latest election, officials say that he does not maintain a TikTok account and that its videos were created on non-governmental devices. The Fitchburg-based game store Noble Knight has announced it will voluntarily recognize a union formed by employees. The union, Noble Knight Games United, announced they were unionizing last month and includes 58 of the 75 total employees at the company. Company Vice President Dan Leader announced the decision to voluntarily recognize the union last week, saying that while they needed some time to discuss the action, they plan to be reasonable and negotiate in good faith with the union. Noble Knight employees say that they are seeking higher pay, more affordable benefits, and a healthier work-life balance. One employee told the Capital Times that their pay is so low that some of them can only afford to work for the company because of the income or health care of their spouse. A date has been set by a Dane County judge to decide whether to appoint a special prosecutor to charge the Madison police officer who shot and killed Tony Robinson in 2015, reports Madison 365. Officer Matthew Kenny shot and killed Robinson after friends called 911 saying he was acting erratically. Less than a minute after Kenny approached the stairwell where he said he heard Robinson, Kenny shot him seven times. While Dane County District Attorney Ismail Ozan declined to charge Kenny in 2015, saying that the use of force was lawful, Robinson's grandmother is using a little-known state statute to ask the court to independently pursue charges. A hearing will be taking place on February 20th and 21st in 2023 to decide whether there is probable cause to charge Kenny. Madison City Council will meet in a hybrid meeting this evening on top of the regular deluge of liquor licenses and thanking former Alder Syed Abbas for his service. A number of notable items are on tonight's agenda. The first major item pertains to the timing of Alder's terms. Under the proposed change, terms would become staggered with council elections happening every year. Currently, all Alders sit for two-year terms with an election taking place every two years. Under the proposal, alders in even-numbered districts would be up for election in even-numbered years, and alders in odd-numbered districts would be up for, you guessed it, odd-numbered years. Also on tonight's agenda is a number of items looking to increase affordable housing throughout Madison. A resolution to award up to almost $9 million to three affordable housing developments through Madison is up for debate. The three developments would bring around 500 new rental units to Madison, and over half of those would be reserved as low-income housing. That meeting begins at 6.30 and will be conducted online and in person at room 201 of the City County Building. And finally, after a contentious school board meeting last night, the Madison Metropolitan School District will begin to move toward eliminating standalone honors courses for 9th and 10th grades. 
The proposed changes would remove designated honors courses for the freshmen and sophomores. Instead, students would take a regular class and take a specific performance assessment test to determine whether they earned an honors credit. This move comes after school administrators pointed to racial disparities in who is taking the standalone honors classes. In the 2018-2019 school year, these classes were made up of around 40% students of color across the district, while the district as a whole was made up of around 58% students of color. This change will go before the school board for a final vote on December 19th, and if passed, would go into effect in 2024. And now on to today's top stories. Twenty-three months after the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, federal officials are still investigating what led to the day of mayhem and attempted murder. A U.S. Department of Justice investigation into the January 6th attack and attempts by Donald Trump and his supporters to overturn the 2020 election is examining the political atmosphere months before and after the vote. Part of that investigation concerns how the Trump campaign interacted with local election officials in key swing states, including in Wisconsin. WRT producer Nate Wuggiehout has more. Dane County Clerk Scott McDonald has been subpoenaed as part of a special investigation by the Justice Department investigating the circumstances that led to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. As part of the investigation, led by new special counsel Jack Smith, local election officials in Arizona, Michigan, and right here in Wisconsin are being subpoenaed for their communications with Trump and his campaign, reports the Washington Post. In Wisconsin, Milwaukee clerk George Christensen was served, and here in Dane County, clerk Scott McDonald has been served, asking for all communications between the clerk's office and 19 key members of Donald Trump's campaign. Campaign. The subpoena, issued on November 22nd but not served to McDonald until last Thursday, asked for all documented communications between the clerk's office and the Trump campaign between June 1st, 2020 and January 20th, 2021. That includes everything from emails sent between the two parties, text messages, instant messaging, and any other documented form of communication. The subpoena was issued by Special Counsel Jack Smith, who was appointed last month to oversee the federal January 6th insurrection case, as well as the criminal probe and to Trump's potential mishandling of classified documents. While the requested records don't seem to specifically pertain to either January 6th or the classified documents case, they do pertain to two Wisconsin recounts in the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election. In Dane County, the days-long recount was overseen by Scott McDonnell and involved attorneys for both campaigns. McDonnell says that he thinks that he was served the subpoena because the special counsel is trying to cover all of their bases. You know, I think they're serving it to the election officials in those swing states, the ones that, you know, the former president was trying to change the outcomes of, and they're making sure that, you know, anything that that might be relevant hasn't been missed. You know, just because, you know, you don't you don't know what other phone calls were made or pressure was put on. So I think they're checking that. And then, you know, there might be information in emails that at the time didn't seem that important, but 
may have been before January 6th, so you don't really realize you know, how they fit into some plan. The subpoena is expansive. It seeks documentation for anyone who spoke with the clerk's office while representing the Trump campaign in the latter half of 2020 and January of 2021, including Trump himself. But the subpoena explicitly lists 19 specific Trump campaign attorneys who played a significant role in the campaign and recount. That includes people like Kenneth Chesbro and Jim Trupis, two Wisconsin attorneys who represented the Trump campaign during the Dane County recount, and Trump campaign officials like Justin Clark, Lynn Wood, and Sidney Powell. McDonald says that they have already found all of the documents asked for in the subpoena. We did a search for those names and uh, really not a lot in there. The only person I had any contact with was Jim Trupas, who was representing the Trump campaign during the recount here in Milwaukee and in Dane. And so there, you know, there are transcripts of all of our um, all of the days of the recount. So we have that, and there there's some information in there, but really nothing nothing new. While the January 6th committee has been active for over a year, this is the first time that Scott McDonnell has been directly involved in the federal investigation. He says that while he's surprised that he was included, he hopes that the 2020 presidential election soon becomes a distant memory. Yeah, I never would have imagined that, well, there there would be an insurrection, you know, and it just still seems crazy that that happened. And you know, I am grateful for this last election, things running smoothly and at least returning to some semblance of normalcy a little bit there. But yeah, I mean, I this 2020 election just seems to never, never go away. The Dane County Clerk's Office has until Friday to turn over all known communications to the special counsel. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. It's officially holiday season, so declares the state government. Today, the governor and other dignitaries kicked off year-end festivities by lighting a holiday tree in the rotunda of the Wisconsin State Capitol. WORT reporter Abigail Levins has the story. So good afternoon, folks, and welcome to the 2022 holiday tree lighting celebration. I am Sarah Rodriguez, your lieutenant governor-elect. The holiday tree is a 30-foot balsam fir from northern Wisconsin, towering over the Capitol Rotunda. It's draped with 2,000 lights and ornaments made by elementary school students, and a train chugs around the base of the tree. This year's theme is Wisconsin Waters, and the ornaments made by elementary schoolers are intended to celebrate Wisconsin's waterways. Governor Tony Evers says water is an integral part of the state. Here in Wisconsin, we pride ourselves on the state's natural resources, including air and fresh waters. Governor Tony Evers and Lieutenant Governor-elect Sarah Rodriguez were joined by members from the Ho-Chunk Nation, the Wisconsin Youth Symphony, and a speaker representing the dairy industry, and hundreds of families and members of the public. Members of the Ho-Chunk Nation performed several dances, recognizing the significance of the Ho-Chunk Nation and honoring their flag and veterans. Then Ho-Chunk elder Janice Rice spoke about Wisconsin waters. Uh, I'm here today to uh, honor Wisconsin waters. We're all here um, in honor of the fresh waters that we have throughout Wisconsin. After the dance and drum performance, Tony Evers led the lighting of the tree with a countdown. Five, four, three, two, one. 
Many of the students who attended the lighting had opinions on the tree. The lights are too saturated. That's Taylor, but his companion Shelly enjoyed the ceremony. It's beautiful. I love the dancing. Uh, a great experience overall. Students Elijah and Samantha also enjoyed their experience. It was cool. I really enjoyed the um, the dances and the songs. Um, it was definitely something new. I've never been here before while this tree lighting thing was happening, and it was a lot of fun. The holiday tree has been a point of contention over the last few winter seasons, though not this winter. Governor Evers opted for it to be called the holiday tree in 2019 to be more inclusive. The Republican-led legislator objected to this, saying it should be called the more traditional Christmas tree. And in 2020, two Republican representatives put up their own short-lived tree in protest, even though the Capitol was closed to the public during the pandemic. That tree was eventually removed. The Capitol tree will stay lit this month through December 29th, after which it will be taken down in preparation for the inauguration in January. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Abigail Levins. With bus rapid transit now just around the corner, Madison officials are looking for ways to make the city more pedestrian friendly. One idea, a new overlay district that would alter zoning laws to bring more housing to Madison's public transit corridors. To learn more, WRT producer Nate Buggyhout spoke with Grant Foster, District 15 Alder and sponsor of an ordinance to overhaul neighborhoods along Madison's new bus routes. Last night, the city's Transportation Policy and Planning Board met to discuss a change to zoning regulations around the city that, if passed, is hoped to create a more pedestrian-friendly city of Madison. The Transit-Oriented Development District, or TOD, was brought forward by the city's attorney's office last month. To learn more, I'm joined now by Grant Foster, uh, District 15 Alder, and one of the sponsors of the ordinance. Uh, Grant, thank you so much for talking with me today. Nice to be here. Now, Grant, just to start things here, uh, TOD, Transit-Oriented Development District, uh, what does that mean? Uh, Tell me a little bit about what a TOD district uh, would be. Um, Transit-Oriented Development is something that a lot of cities have um, had in place for a number of years, and I think really it's just a recognition that uh, living close to high-frequency mass transit is a a real positive resource. That's something that that, um, really makes transportation easy for folks that live and work and do their business within the city. Um, And so what this is really meant to do is just to encourage um, uh, use of space that's really within walking distance of that high-capacity, high-frequency transit and make sure that as a city we're really capitalizing on those investments. So the the bus rapid transit investments and network redesign, we're able to provide a number of corridors with this very high-frequency um, transit option, the BRT and, and related services. And we want to make sure that we're um, allowing as many people as possible to take advantage of those, you know, live, live close by that or have uh, jobs or other services that are all located close to those um, high-frequency transit lines. And so this is sort of coming uh, sort of on the heels of BRT coming in uh, next year. So what, what would actually change if a neighborhood were to be uh, designated a TOD district? What, what sort of uh, changes would come with that? Sure. Yeah. And we've actually had uh, a version of the transit-oriented design on our zoning books for a while. Um, it just hasn't really um, hasn't been very um, useful so what the, the current proposal that's been reviewed by the plan commission and, as you mentioned, the Transportation Policy Board, um, is really um, 
just increases and encourages more density and more intensity of use um, in those areas that are, um, you know, within a quarter mile of that, that uh, high frequency transit. So it'll, and it'll touch a lot of neighborhoods across the city. Um, certainly the, you know, the primary kind of BRT lines, the east-west line along East Washington and going out Mineral Point Road and the future north-south um, line um, as well, going down Park Street and up uh, Packers or uh, or Sherman. Um, so it, it really just increases um, kind of how much development can happen there. So in, in broad terms, it might add an extra um, floor of height to, to what the current zoning um, allows. Uh, in single-family neighborhoods, it allows a, dupe, a duplex to be built where um, otherwise only a single-family could be built. So it's sort of this kind of incremental increase in how much density or intensity of use is allowable uh, by right on, on sites that are in those corridors. Now, some of the uh, things that are being touted uh, with this plan is both a more efficient use of land, which is something that you sort of touched on there, as well as uh, uh, slowing the increase of traffic. How, how would sort of that work? How would TOD sort of attra- uh, affect uh, vehicle use? Uh, well, I mean, having access to, to good quality transit is one of the best ways to um, have folks choose that as an option. So in a lot of places in the city, taking the bus it just isn't a real practical option. Um, you know, there's, there, hopefully a lot of folks will see some improvements in that next year when the new network goes live. But we recognize that it's still impossible to provide very, you know, very high quality transit service to every address in the city. Um, so this is really just rec- recognizing that and um, making sure that we're we're making that available for as many people as possible. So. Um, that you know, that's sort of how we're incentivizing it. On that end, it's sort of the um, the carrot of uh, of the transportation equation. Um, another a, a separate proposal that will actually be on the council agenda tonight is for traffic demand management or TDM, um, and that program is really a little bit more of the the stick side of it. Um, really making sure that we are not overbuilding on car parking first and foremost, um, and having having developers take other steps. Um, to encourage folks to use alternate modes of, of transportation. So, you know, the two kind of work well together, but they're they're two separate initiatives. And so is the end goal to sort of try and try and make Madison a little bit more pedestrian friendly. What 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 do you hope to accomplish with the uh, TOD districts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think our, our transportation policy is pretty clear and it's actually been pretty clear for a while. Um, you know, it's really just up to, to policymakers at this point. Uh, in terms of you know how how fast are we trying to get to this um, this new transportation system? And I think the you know, the slower we go, the longer we take to get there, the more we continue to rely rely on kind of single occupancy car trips. Um, it's just going to make it harder to convert down the road. So we can we can look at bigger cities across the globe, and we know it's a it's a pretty straightforward math problem about how this ends. Um, and so I've certainly been an advocate for moving as quickly and, and rapidly towards improving our transit system, improving our bike network, our ped network, uh, because we have to we have to have good options. If we're going to make it, if it's going to become more difficult for folks to move around in car, uh, we need to make sure that we're really improving the, the alternatives for them. So that's really what, what all of these different measures are about, are these kind of incremental and slow ways to, to make it. Um, easier and, and better and more attractive to move around the city um, without having to, to use your own car. Um, and, um, you know, traffic is going to continue to get worse. Parking is going to continue to get more expensive. So 
those things are already happening and it is going to get more difficult, more expensive and more frustrating to have to rely on cars to get around the city. Now, we we mentioned that, you know, this is coming ahead of uh, the bus rapid transit that is coming next year. But you did mention that, uh, you know, this is something that several other cities sort of around the country sort of have. So I want to ask why why bring this forward uh, now? Uh, well, it, you know, it's been in the in the identified in a lot of um, adopted plans that this is a strategy that we should pursue. So I think it's something that staff from the Department of Transportation and, and planning staff have worked on. Um, you know, there's, there was a lot of um, just wanting to make sure that we're doing it the best way we can, making sure that we can avoid unintended consequences. You know, it's, it's complicated when you start making changes to our zoning code. Um, and so I think there's just been a lot of thought put into it, but I'd say this has been in the works for, for quite some time already. Well, Grant, we're sort of running up against the clock here. Do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to share with me? Uh, just, I mean, I'm excited that this is um, coming forward. I, I hope and expect that it gets um, good support from council and uh, just excited for, for all of us to continue down this path of improving our, our um, other transportation options here in Madison. It's really just about making sure that folks can get around where they need to go. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that we're in a, a relatively progressive city and we're really trying to take some of these steps proactively because um, those cities that, that fail to do it or that are too slow are really going to find themselves in a crunch. So I'm just grateful to be part of the part of the solution. I've been talking with Grant Foster, District 15 Alder and sponsor of the ordinance to create the new TOD districts. Uh, that ordinance will go before the City Planning Committee next week uh, before going to the full council later in January. Grant, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Thank you, Nate. Happy to be here. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week, Cardinal Call producer Hope Carnop spoke with reporter Madeline Afonso about the Lakeshore Nature Preserve. We're in such a bit of an urban area, and this is one of the few places that you can go for a nice bite of nature. Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by incoming campus news editor Madeline Afonso to discuss what's next for the Lakeshore Nature Preserve. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. What is the Lakeshore Nature Preserve and why is it important for students to access? The Lakeshore Nature Preserve is a 300-acre part of campus and it makes up a third of the entire campus. A lot of students don't notice that or don't realize that, but it encompasses the Lakeshore Preserve Trail, the Eagle Heights Gardens, which is used by, I think a lot of community members and classes and such, the BioCorp Prairie and everyone's favorite picnic point. Lots of people love going to picnic points, very well loved. 
And it's certainly important for students to access because it's a section of campus that's, as you, I mean, it's obviously all nature and trees and it's very beautiful. It's just a really nice kind of part of campus that you can go to for a respite during your day, during your week. You know, whenever you're feeling your head's a little clouded, you can just go on like a three mile walk <laughs> out to campus or um, out to picnic point. And yeah, I'd say it's just as important as the other two thirds of campus that are all campus buildings. It's just this beautiful, huge area. How many years is this new master plan good for? And what are some of the major projects and initiatives that are included in it? This master plan, I believe covers the next 10 years. And master plans out of um, campus planning, landscape architecture, facilities, all those departments are usually just outlines and they're just like recommendations of what they want to see happen and they're going to try their best to make happen. And for this one, the biggest proposal was an outreach facility, a preserve outreach facility, because the two folks that I talked to, they were really um, excited about, they're really adamant about how volunteers who come and, you know, do like restoration work and volunteer work on the preserve, because it's a huge area and needs a lot of maintenance. Um, All of their supplies are located on random parts of campus, and it takes them like an hour to get all their supplies. And then they have an hour to do their work and they need an hour to put all the stuff back. So it'll really save a lot of time and volunteers will be able to get a lot more work done. And the other part was for education and holding classes because a lot of classes, you know, there's the, there's, um, I don't know, agricultural classes, ecology, everything under that umbrella goes out there to it's like it's an outdoor laboratory that's like it's big it's big phrase but having like a building to meet at and you know group together as a class before you embark on what assignments you have in the gardens or on picnic point or doing any kind of research or data collection they're really excited about that was the biggest one there's um some research studies about there's a shoreline that collapsed and they want to figure out ways to fix it. Lots of vegetation studies on how to curb invasive species and stuff like that. And everything else from the trails, overlooks, more they, they talked about more benches. They're very happy about mm-hmm. having more benches. I love sitting on benches in the Lake Shore Nature Preserve. What did the plans project manager, Rhonda James, say about the legacy of the Ho-Chunk on this part of the land? Rhonda mentioned that they had talked to a native representative from the Ho-Chunk and how if the facility, if the Lakeshore Nature Preserve was a space that they'd like to have their culture shared and how they could help them do that. She was very, um, they're both very, both of the women, they were very excited about that um, because that land is um, it's very sacred and the Ho-Chunk have been using the land for 12,000 years, they mentioned. And there's lots of burial grounds. It's a very ancestrally like sacred, important site in the history of the Ho-Chunk living there. So they're very happy to have some feedback from the Ho-Chunk representative. So we'll see where it goes on how they'd like their culture represented in that space. How is the plan expected to contribute to or affect the ecology of the area? Ecology-wise, 
their biggest emphasis was on maintaining plant communities and kind of controlling, keeping them like the same kind of like maintain. Yeah, maintain was the biggest word, keeping plant communities together and controlling invasive species because that really hampers obviously the ecology of the area and different species because it's very important to have native plants to enable different species to flourish. So they talked a lot about restoring areas and just maintaining invasives because they can get out of hand if not maintained like over time. They mentioned like years ago in the 70s or something, they're like, oh yeah, people were like, oh, you know, the land will take care of itself. It'll be fine. It'll all work itself out. So that posed a big challenge that I think they're still trying to manage with different invasive plants everywhere. The preserve is also used for academic and research purposes. How is the plan expected to affect those elements of campus? Besides the Outreach Preserve Center that I'm not sure, we're not sure how long it'll be, you know, it'll materialize, but they also mentioned another picnic, like kind of picnic shelter, outdoor shelter in the BioCorp Prairie and near Eagle Heights Gardens. And that's where most of I think the educational components happen and where classes meet because there's the BioCorp Prairie where biology students go out and test their own hypotheses on the prairie. And sometimes um, they, they mention that maybe a teacher wants to bring their laptop and show students like, here's what we're gonna do today. Here's a quick rundown and have somewhere to like plug in their laptop to just quick hang out. Um, and same thing with the Eagle Heights Gardens. What do you think this plan will mean for students in the communities that access this preserve in the future? For students and communities, first for students, I think maintaining the, because it's a very well-loved space. It's got, you know, it's got its wear and tear. The, the trails are very heavily used because we're in such a bit of an urban area and this is one of the few places that you can go for a nice bite of nature. So keeping it maintained and all the facilities where humans made the facil facilities so humans could use this space will help a lot. Just keep it well running and loved. And they also mentioned a lot about research opportunities for students and undergrads and grads. They really emphasized how, you know, the whole living laboratory thing again, how it can provide research opportunities and just more opportunities to learn. And the first point, same thing goes for the community. It's just very well loved and keeping it maintained is important to have access to outdoor spaces. Is there anything else you want to share about your story or anything surprising you learned from your research? One bit that I didn't get to include was how they put in a tracker to see how many people visited um, the, the preserve and they only put it in on picnic point in this one entrance and people can enter from everywhere pretty much but they tracked 140,000 people I think it was last year which I thought was pretty pretty crazy you really don't realize how many people go there because it's so large but I thought that was a cool stat that they got to collect thank you so much Maddie for coming on the show and talking about your story with us thank you Hope
That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. Family can mean many things, and at the Wildlife Rehab Center operated by the Dane County Humane Society, it can mean finding the right bird for the job of caring for orphaned chicks. On tonight's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg breaks down everything they look for when searching for a foster family. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we've been discussing a lot about foster birds or foster parenting, and I thought it would make a pretty cool radio segment to talk about what foster parenting actually is. So wildlife rehabilitators are here to treat sick, injured, and orphaned wild animals. Now, I know we're in our slow winter period season, which in Wisconsin is usually about October to April, but we're going to be thinking about baby animals here in the next two months. And it seems a little early to be thinking about that, but we are just going to be entering the mating period and season for a lot of our raptor species. And so when we think about fostering, probably the first species or type that we jump to as wildlife rehabilitators is thinking about raptors, where they're going to be pairing into January and February, making nests, they'll be setting up territories, and actually the first babies of the year tend to arrive for us being great horned owls at the end of February to early March. So it's definitely something that we are always prepared to have take in. Every year is very different about the timing of our first baby, uh, but we definitely have to think about the critical periods that birds experience. And birds are very special, right? You know, they are high intensive, you know, parental care, constant from their mom and their dad. If you think of an owl, they're just like going back and forth. They're sitting on top of them to make sure they're warm, which is called brooding. They are going out hunting and bringing back food for the babies and very carefully just like shearing off pieces of their prey, for example, and giving those pieces to their little itty bitty babies. And those babies are almost just so helpless when they're first um, admitted into wildlife rehab, especially when they're young hatchlings. You know, they can barely see, they can't really stand up. They just lay their heads there like you know, for owls, they clack. And honestly, they're just looking up to whatever is giving them the food. And while that seems really cute and cuddly, it's actually a really big problem in wildlife rehabilitation because if you get a really newly hatched owl, a very young one, then you have to think to yourself, well, you're now the source of food. You are the sole caretaker for this bird. And you're not its parent. You're not its mom. You know, that owl is really susceptible to just thinking, oh, you're my mother, right? So if you've ever heard of imprinting, which is basically taking whatever, you know, as a baby animal, whatever your parental caregiver or even an object might be, they can get so used to seeing that, you know, surroundings, whether it's the sound, the smell, the sight of people, for example, and thinking, oh, I am now a human, or that tweezers that are feeding me, I am now imprinted on those tweezers. You know, that could be an example. But there's an alternative to that. Instead of us or humans being that primary caregiver, which is still vital, there are other options called fostering, whether we're talking about wild fostering, which is taking that baby that has hatched 
and hopefully if it's healthy, if it's not able to go back in the original nest it came from because the parents left it, abandoned it, or maybe all the other siblings are deceased, that might be a reason for us to try putting that baby in another nest with a totally different parent, totally different siblings. And a lot of times there's this innate behavior for the wild animal mother to continue giving care. And also the father, I should say that too, but you know, when I'm typically thinking about parental input, a lot of times the female gives more of that input, really depends on species. But for the source of this uh, radio segment, we'll just continue to say that. So the parents are going to be deeply invested no matter whether the baby is theirs or not. They just see a whole bunch of little begging owls saying, I'm hungry, feed me. So it's really great if you can find an alternative nest site with similar aged species and those animals to be able to add them to a clutch. So that's probably their best option possible rather than keeping that animal in care with humans constantly giving them care, which for babies and especially raptors, that's a lot of frequent feeding throughout the day. It's a lot of interaction. And again, that is going to increase the risk of imprinting or getting too used to people, which would be tameness or even habituation, getting used to their surroundings. So we've got other options. Let's say that bird maybe broke a leg for some reason or has a really major injury that although he's young, it's a hatchling, we really need to keep that bird in rehabilitation for a certain amount of time. We have to be careful that if the younger that they are, the more critical it is that they see an adult of that same species to mimic or to follow or to get experience from, even listening to calls and hearing those sounds from an adult. So sometimes you have foster parents, which is in rehabilitation. Now, there are some different definitions of what this means, but really when we're saying that we've got a foster bird, which some rehabilitators actually have on their permits, for example, a foster is using a captive animal to rear young of the same species. So it's an animal that typically is non-releasable. So it's an animal that after rehabilitation has been determined by usually the department, if we're talking birds, it's going to be U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, to be unlikely to survive in the wild if we release it. And at that point, as rehabilitators, we should always be making the decision, you know, what are we going to do with this animal? If we can't release it, what is the best for that individual? Is it a life in captivity? Is it going to a sanctuary, a zoo? There's a whole lot of ethical considerations that go into that. And I would go back to our standard guidelines or minimum care guidelines of rehabilitation, which if we go through the code of ethics, number eight, it's that a wildlife rehabilitator should strive to provide professional and humane care in all phases of wildlife rehabilitation, respecting the wildness and maintaining the dignity of each animal in life and in death. Releasable animals should be maintained in a wild condition and released as soon as appropriate, but non-releasable animals, which are inappropriate for education, they are inappropriate for foster parenting, or for captive breeding, do have a right to humane euthanasia, and that's what we might choose. But foster bird opportunities don't come around very often, and sometimes at this time of year, especially in like winter in Wisconsin, we might be keeping a bird for longer than we normally would in the summer period because releasing it into the winter where there's low food availability, extreme temperatures, and of course, if we're thinking about migratory species, maybe we're not able to release them right away until the spring or the fall migration. So we actually are thinking about foster birds during this time of year of species that maybe could benefit from having a non-releasable adult around. So we think of things like morning doves. You know, we get over 100 morning doves a year to our wildlife center. We know that 
pigeons and doves, things in the columbiform families, tend to be actually pretty good parents to others of their, you know, not same clutch or not same genetic material, however you want to call it, just a, an individual that's not even related to that adult. So that's something that we might be considering over this winter. Let's say a bird comes in and has a wing fracture that just isn't able to be healed fully for release. Well, then we start thinking education, foster parent, captive breeding, which in this case we wouldn't do for a dove. However, we definitely want to consider the stress in captivity for their lifetime, whether or not that's appropriate for them ethically. But you may be able to take that species and write a written report and a request to say, hey, you know, this bird is not able to be released. We tried our best in rehabilitation, but we do think that behaviorally it might be a good fit to be a foster parent. And so there are guidelines and they're state by state and they are permits that are issued by usually the department. Usually it's going to be a mixture of getting some sort of okay from the state or from U.S. Fish and Wildlife, obviously in the case of birds. And every state, again, is a little bit different, but they do have to make sure that they have put forth uh, an application or put it on their application to say, yes, you know, we are using this animal for a specific reason. And in this case, it's going to be for fostering. So there's some that are more comprehensive than others state by state, but it's definitely an important one to say, okay, what's the reason that you're justifying this animal to live its life in captivity when it could be a very difficult thing for this individual animal? But let's say that that one bird helps foster hundreds of other birds in the time of its rehabilitation uh, as a foster. And that's pretty critical, I think, if you're going to maybe make that argument to say this one bird can help us reduce the risk of imprinting from this other number of birds that we get to the facility. And therefore, hundreds of them will be released appropriately because they have that foster to look up to and to have care for. I think it's a pretty cool thing. It's not something that we get to have come up very often. I think uh, usually as rehabilitators, we'll transfer to another facility that already has a foster bird present of that same species because you want to make sure that those species are being kept together, housed together, and giving them the chance to grow up with that same species, whether it's another bird in care that's already being rehabbed and you can put them together or if you have to transfer them to somewhere that has a foster available. So that's a little bit about fostering. Uh, it's pretty complex with the legal standards about what we're going to do, how to apply for it, and making sure it's the right conditions for that animal. But it's definitely um, something that rehabilitators use and are thinking about in our field. And we just have to try to make the best consideration for not only the whole, but the individual that we're working with. So that's a little bit more about our field, an in-depth look at our wild fostering and foster parenting in wildlife rehab. If you have any questions about any animals that you see, sick, injured, or orphaned, give us a call at 608-287-3235. Otherwise, thanks for listening here on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly. This week on Radio Astronomy, host Andrew Nine strikes gold with a new discovery within the stars of distant galaxies. Good evening, and welcome to Radio Astronomy. My name is Andrew Nine, and tonight, there's gold and then there's stars. In a recent paper published in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, a team of astronomers led by Dr. Yutaka Hirai of the University of Notre Dame concluded that most stars that are enriched in metals like gold and platinum were formed very early on in the universe and were then incorporated into more massive galaxies. But to break down what that all means, let's talk about how stars produce elements. For most of their lives, 
Stars sustain themselves by fusing light elements into heavier ones in their cores, releasing energy in the process. For most stars, that means fusing hydrogen atoms into helium, though more massive stars can go beyond that, fusing helium into carbon, carbon into oxygen, oxygen into neon, neon into silicon, and silicon into iron. But that's not the whole story. In the very last stages of some stars' lives, some of those fusion reactions spit out stray neutrons, which can collide with and stick to other heavy elements already in the star. That new neutron can then decay to produce a proton and an electron, transforming that element into a new, heavier element. This process is called the slow process, or the S process for short, because neutrons get added more slowly than they decay. This S process is responsible for producing about half of the elements heavier than iron. But that still leaves a lot of elements unaccounted for. To get the rest of the elements on the periodic table, we need to add neutrons to elements faster than they decay, which means we need to throw a whole lot of neutrons at a whole lot of elements all at once. One way to do this is in a supernova, which can produce some of those heavier elements. The other way is through a neutron star merger. Neutron stars are the remnants of some supernovae, and they are truly wild objects. They pack between one and a half to three times the mass of our sun into a sphere the size of a city, and they are made almost entirely of neutrons. When two neutron stars orbit each other, they throw off orbital energy in the form of gravitational waves, and they spiral in towards each other as a result. The end stage of this process is a merger, where those two enormous piles of neutrons collide with each other and throw out huge amounts of shrapnel in the form of heavy elements, especially gold and platinum. This process is called the rapid process, or the R process for short. This exact event made headlines back in 2017, when astronomers observed the light from a neutron star merger in the galaxy NGC 4993 and saw the telltale signs of gold and platinum among other heavy R process elements. So what did this have to do with stars in the early universe? In our current models of how the universe evolved, the first galaxies were much smaller than they are today and there were a lot less elements heavier than helium to go around. In these tiny galaxies, massive stars lived and died and produced neutron stars, which then merged with each other to produce R process elements like gold. Because these galaxies were so small, the neutron star mergers could enrich a lot of stars in a short amount of time. As our universe aged, the first small galaxies merged to produce more massive galaxies with more stars. Neutron star mergers were still ongoing, but because there were more stars around after these galaxy mergers, they couldn't enrich as large a fraction of the stars around them as they could before. As galaxies continued to merge, the gold-enriched stars got more and more spread out in these galaxies until we get to the present day. According to Dr. Hirai and the other authors of the study, we can use observations of gold-enriched stars to reconstruct how the galaxies we see around us today were built. Even today, according to the authors, we see that gold-enriched stars tend to be found in the remote outskirts of more massive galaxies, and many are found in so-called stellar streams. 
These features are exactly what we would expect from small galaxies colliding and forming more massive galaxies. These galaxy mergers are messy processes and can throw stars all over the place. Many of the stars that get thrown around form what is called a galactic halo, a diffuse sphere of stars around the main disk of the galaxy made of mostly older, metal-poor stars. On the other hand, a stellar stream is the result of a small galaxy encountering a much larger galaxy and getting torn apart and swallowed by the larger galaxy, getting stretched into a long stream of stars in the process. Now that we know what to look for in gold-enriched stars, it'll be a lot easier going forward to study stars in streams and galactic halos and to reconstruct how the galaxies we see around us came to be. This is Andrew Nine from Radio Astronomy. Thank you for tuning in, and have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News Podcast and subscribe wherever you find podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish Language News with the Nuestro Patio. Good night. <laughs>